I'm Kennedy and I'm 18 years old. My parents are very unique because of the way that I was brought up. I feel like I've had the opportunity to be able to speak my mind in certain situations and the opportunity to be honest with them and have conversations that I know that a lot of my friends are not able to have with their parents. But there is still a big misunderstanding sometimes and lack of, there's a lot of communication, but a lack of comprehension. Welcome back to HBO's Between the World and Me podcast. I'm your host, Susan Kilechi Watson. Today you'll be hearing from Adrian Marie Brown, Kimberly Nicole Foster, Sonia Renee Taylor, and Bisa Butler. This is episode three, The Future. Let's get started with a conversation between Tanahasi Coates and Camila Forbes. So, like, uh, there's a part, that part with uh, uh, Brianna Taylor's mom. Um, you know, Tamika Palmer, like, I, you know, I went to Louisville and I was like, all right, you know, I'm going to go do this thing. And I'm going to, you know, write about, you know, what's happening down there and the protests and everything. And this is before, you know, you know, the whole issue had really, really, really blown up. I mean, it was protest local. It had blown up for local activists, but hadn't quite got as national as it became. And um, I, um, I was talking to her and... She, you know, actually went through that whole part that you have in the movie. And I was like, there's absolutely nothing I can write Mm -hmm. (laughs) that will be more effective and will be this intimate. Mm -hmm. Because remember, I'm always going for intimacy. I I, I can't do this. I can't, you know what I mean? I can't beat her. Mm-hmm. At this, and so you know, it's like okay. So let me, let me, let me, let me hand you the mic. You know what I mean, and let you really, really do. You know what I mean. Tell, tell these people who you, who your daughter, who your daughter was. You're not gonna be Tamika Palm. I'm not gonna be. You know, I, I didn't have that relationship. Yeah. Right. You know, right. and so I think like figuring out how to how to make that translate into something that you know what I mean is affecting. You know what I mean, and really, really hits people in, in, in a certain kind of way. You know, is 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 always the job, and and people who can see themselves in your words, even if they're you know specific or they come out of a specific place. You know, um, the need to protect your body is so elemental to anybody. anybody. To anybody, I mean, that's that's that is it, right? And and that is what people, no matter where they're from or identity, understand gender, race, ethnicity, right. class. Right, right. I mean, if you if you open yourself up, you can see it, you know? You can see yeah. it. Even even making the film, you know, we tried actually having Michelle's, one of the actors, reading her lines. Um, and so one of the actors interpreting, um, you know, Tamika's lines um, during that scene. And there there was something um particularly because of the intimacy the urgency um and the closeness that we just have to that to Brianna's story right now like nothing competed to you know it this that scene opened up when we actually had her mother you know Tamika's voice you know what it is too she has this like almost in shock deadpan delivery yes yes and is she not yelling not screaming. I can't believe it's just like, look, this is what happened. No, I'm just gonna tell no. you what 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 the fuck just happened here. 
and it's That's very right. you know low key and it because you know Brianna Taylor and you know this ends really poorly and you can hear it unfurling there's a kind of contrast in how she describes it because she's so measured and the results, you know what I mean? And then I think like, you know, like just, you did a tremendous job with having the actors react to that. You know, I don't know. Did you tell them to react to that? What did you, how'd you get? No. So guess what? That actually wasn't supposed to be there in that scene. Wow. What happened? All the actors actually were reacting to Prince Jones's story. Wow. And so every, you know, when we shot them, we would get our reaction shot and we would, you know, all of them had earwigs and they heard Greg's monologue and they were reacting to that. But, you know, once we started cutting it together and cut together that Brianna scene and actually, you know, our editors were like, well, actually, let me let me just try something out. And we threw a couple of those in there and it was like, whoa, no, this is the, this is the moment. This is the moment that we're all building towards is that moment there. So yeah, the actors actually weren't even hearing Brianna's story, but there's, (laughs) there's some meta-ness in that because, you know, there's a line you have that this isn't new for Black people. This is actually old for Black people. And so her deadpan matter of fact, this is what happened to my daughter. I, I, you know, when I knew she was still in the, you know, the next morning and they told me that she was still in the apartment, I knew what that meant. You know, that, that, that whole, um, oh, I just, I get, I get, I get really choked up every time I think about that scene. And I think about just as a mother, you know, um, having to face that reality of losing your daughter, but also facing the reality of this ain't new to us. This is old to us, you know, is, um. It's such a, it's a conflicting place to be, you know, but this is, that's Black in America. Camilla, I mean, I can't say this enough, man. Camilla, you are, um, bar none, the hardest working person I know. (laughs) You know, the hardest working motherfucker I know. I I don't, I don't know um, too many people, and I don't, I'm not, I'm not going to say too much because I don't, I don't want to put niggas business out in the end, you know what I'm saying? But, um. You're the hardest working person I know. And I just, I want you to make sure that other people respect that. Um, sometimes we can't see ourselves, you know? And, I, and I had to le- I've had to learn this myself. You know what I mean? And frankly, it's kind of good that we can't see ourselves. You know, Kenyatta always told, tells me, I, you know, I always tell her going through this moment. You know, right now, that really began with the water, with, well, not with the water dance, but between the world and me. Um, it's tough for me to see what other people are reacting to because I am within, you know, my own space. And she tells me, she always says, you know, look, if you could see it, you'd be an asshole. So if you knew how hard you work, maybe you would be an asshole. <laughs> but, you know, you take it seriously when other people say it. You know what I mean? And I just, I, I, I want to make sure that that's respected. Yeah, I appreciate that. I, you know, I, I do. It's, it's hard. Um, it's funny because, you know, even in, in this context, I think I'm always used to doing um, and doing, you know, maybe that's also from my parents, um, you know, immigrants to this country. And their whole drilling in my head is like, work hard, work hard, work hard. If you, the, the harder you work, the more hours you work, you know, um, 
then that's success, right? I remember I would be like, mom, I'm so tired. She was like, good, good. That's good. You're tired. Good. You're working hard. Like, that's what I hear. Um, and it's always, and, and that's a good thing, right? Because I think it's, it's really instilled that in me. But then also the flip side is, um, you know, yeah, is, is that whole like recognition piece is that whole, you know, like, you know, thinking even bigger, um, um, thinking even is taking moments to think even bigger than I can even vision. You know, you know, it's I think what's really hard about that. I will say what I have found is really hard because I, I came from a similar household. I mean, not not immigrants, but uh, good lord, like really, really hard working. Well, I mean, kinda. You know, like black people that came, you know, from the rural south into the city. Let's just say people drawn to you know to opportunity, right? And I think when you're that way, you know. Maybe not everybody, but I think, well, I'll just speak for my, my folks. Um, God, my mom, if my mom saw me like laying on the bed, like looking in the space, she'd be like, you, you need some work to do. Yeah. You need some work to do. Um, yeah. My dad, man, it'd be like Saturday, dog. It'd be Saturday. And my parents, my dad, you know, he owned his own publishing company. So there was always work to do. There was always something yeah. somebody could make you do. There was never any... God, I, I just, I, you know, always joke about this, but like my dad, man, it would be like Saturday. I'd be like, oh, it's Saturday. You know what I'm saying? I don't have to go to school. I'm about to sit in front of these, this TV and watch these cartoons, eat my cold cereal. My dad would come downstairs and he'd be like, Ta-Nehisi, you know, I hope you don't have plans for the day because I have a long list of, 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 of tasks. We got a lot of work we got to get done today. And I'd be like, Jesus Saturday, can I just chill? Can, can I, I just, just get who a break? would do this to somebody? And you know what I mean? Like, who would actually do this to somebody? And so what I what happened, and I don't know when it happened, but at some point, the voice of my mom and the voice of my dad became a voice in the back of my head. And they'd be like, okay, so what are we doing right now? Yeah. What are what yeah, are we yeah. doing right now? How are we, are we like, are we advancing anything? Are we, are we working towards something? Or are we just sitting here? Yeah. And A, A, and this is kind of why I said what I said to you. If you're that type of way, maybe sometimes it's almost hard to 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 remember to make sure that people are respecting it because it's what you would do anyway. You know, That's there's right. no it's not extra That's for right. you. This is just what you do, yeah. this is how you go. Yeah. You know? Um, but the other piece of it is I, I have learned that I have to prioritize other aspects of myself. You know? I do. I do. So Cam, Cam, how, how how are you celebrating? Are you even celebrating? Not yet. It's funny. This was, you know, this Saturday morning, we turned to film in this week. And this is like the first Saturday where normally I'm on the phone with David Teague, who's our supervising editor, and we're talking through notes and we're reviewing scenes and we're looking at graphics and, you know, I'm on the phone with the graphics team, like, you know, sound mix. this is the first Saturday that, like, I haven't been able to do that. So I guess, yes, I'm celebrating, but you know what? Um, something hit me last night and I think we talked about it. You and I have talked about it a little bit. Um, you know, during this process, um, it was always a dream, you know, to build this project um, with family. It started with family, you know, you, Kenyatta, my family, Samari family. Um, we had Shauna Garcia's 
who's Kalita Rawls's cousin, photos that was in your book. She's family. Like this is all our chosen family um, that has been a part of this project. Sue, family, Sue? you know, um, Greg, family, Michelle Wilson, you know, so it's 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 always been at the core, this idea of family. And I think about like, you know, even the first time at the Apollo, you know, Chad actually was supposed to be in it, right? He's our yeah. brother. Yeah. He's our family. Yeah. Um, and mm-hmm. having him pass um, in the midst of this process, um, mm-hmm. I think, you know, it's been mournful, obviously, because this is our brother who's now transitioned on. Mm-hmm. But having this process, this creative process to um, not distract because it's not a distraction, um, but to process the feelings and move through. Um, And also have an opportunity to celebrate even his life and contributions because his legacy has been about art, social justice, changing the world. And so I think I hold on to that, you know? Um, You know, our sister Shauna, I hold on to Right. The memories, you know, I I love the line about, you know, struggle for your grandfather, your grandmother, struggle for their memories, struggle for your ancestors. So I feel like that this project is a complete honoring. And in that is its own celebration. Um, And so and 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 for that, I will pop a bottle of tequila later on tonight. All right. Take some shots. All right. That's that's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. And I'm I'm sorry. you know, Cam was talking earlier about how um, you know we try to figure out how to celebrate this and how to get together and everything. And I'm looking at that and I'm like, I feel totally horrible about what I'm about to say. <laughs> Why must I always be the Grinch? <laughs> you know, and 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 I, and I say that to say like, um, I'm sorry. You know, we can't do this in person. It really sucks. It sucks. I mean, uh, the 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 loss. It's been um, not a good year. You know, it's been not a good year. And uh, all we know how to do is to um, pour that that pain and that sense of loss in, in, into into a project like this. And I, I, I hope the people feel it. I hope they felt it. My name is Bisa Butler, and I'm an artist that makes quilted portraits. I use small bits of fabric, hundreds, probably thousands, to create portraits of African-American people. The Warmth of Other Sons is a portrait of an African-American family. They are seven members of the family and they are migrating from the South and on their way up to the North. All throughout the piece, I've used African fabric to depict what the people want for their journey, where they've come from and where they're going. I created a quilted portrait called Southside Sunday Morning. Southside Sunday Morning was created and inspired by a photo taken by Russell Lee in the Bronzeville section of Chicago in 1940. These five boys to me were dressed so sharply and looked so good that I just could not ignore the sheer brilliance and power coming off of these children. My piece, A New Dawn, was inspired by a photo that I came across of a young boy taken in the 1940s 
in Georgia by the Farm Securities Administration. Um, this particular boy had on a little cap on his head and this very grown-up look for such a small child. I looked at his surroundings, his little bare feet, which, which he had no shoes. His overalls were torn. And I didn't feel pity for him. I saw such a strong and beautiful little child, and it made me wonder about his life and what happened to him. Being that he was only a small child in the 40s, that would mean that he would be an adult in the 1960s and would see a new world. He would see um, jet travel, airplane travel become part of the ordinary landscape. He would see schools become desegregated. He would see a man walk on the moon. And I thought about the song by Nina Simone, Feeling Good. Um, the lyrics, well, a few of the lyrics go, birds flying high, you know how I feel. Sun in the sky, you know how I feel. Breeze drifting on by, you know how I feel. It's a new dawn, it's a new day. It's a new life for me. And I thought that that song, the mood of it, really fit what I wanted to say about this particular little boy and what pros what the world held for him. And this little boy, I want him to be able to triumph over the things that could be and, and do hold our people back now. Racism, segregation, discrimination, um, redlining in housing and not being given opportunities. I'm hoping that this little boy grew up to be successful and happy and was able to succeed over his enemies. And I call it a new dawn to represent my hope that this little boy lived a long and happy life. I'm Nolika Anderson Ratway, and I have the pleasure of being back in conversation with Sonia Renee Taylor, Adrian Marie Brown, and Kimberly Nicole Foster. Um, so happy to be here with you guys still. And so I want to start off um, kind of a lot of what the film kind of explores in all of our blackness and all of our experiences and all of this idea of like the struggle and there's a part of it like it's kind of like you know they made us a race you know that line they made us a race and we made ourselves a people you know Ta-Nehisi in his writing says like I would not refuse you to struggle like I know it sucks but there's parts of it that I would not it's it I like I want you to learn how to live in all of it and I see young people figuring that out every single day. Um, and I think of them as like, you know, we think about like the future. And I want to think, I want us to like imagine the future together for not just ourselves, but for our people um, today. And I think of it as like our fruit. What has been birthed through all of these struggles? And so what are you witnessing is the experience and what are you learning from our Gen Zs, our young people who are out in these streets? What are they teaching us about how to live in all of it? I have some thoughts on this. So a lot comes to mind and I think of 
a few specific teachers. I think of someone who is about 10 years younger than me, who has been leading direct action efforts in Detroit. And then I think about um, a group of young people that I just spoke to from the Black Student Union at Brown University. Um, and they're just like college students right now who are like figuring out how to navigate this. And then I think about my nibbling who is nine. And the mm-hmm. lessons mm-hmm. across are all very aligned, um, which is you have a right to be angry and your anger yes. is one of the ways that your love, the rage is one of the ways that your love um, takes space in public. And I feel like that's not how I was dis- um, that's not how I was politicized. I was politicized very much around, still some respectability and a certain sense of we organize around demands and we are making demands of the existing system. And um, if we do a very good job of making those demands, you know, then, then we will, we will slowly advance our way towards reform Mm -hmm. really. Right. Mm -hmm. And that was Mm -hmm. said by revolutionary people, (laughs) but you know, it took me a long time to, to realize that if we are still in a dynamic where we have to make demands of someone um, then we continue to perpetuate a power dynamic in which those people that we're making demands of always have the power. Mm. And we are always mm. only as far, our power is only as far as the demands. And so when I look at now these three sort of g- different generational points coming up, what I see is we're no longer making demands. We are asserting at how it will be. And we are asserting that from a place of rage. We are, we are, we are done with your experiment, we are pissed as fuck at you for wasting all of the time that we have wasted making demands. And now we assert how it's going to be. And I see that reverberating up through generations. So every time I'm in intergenerational conversations with those who are older than me, I see them like, wow, you know, like we never would have done it that way. We could not have done it that way. And one of the things... I feel is important for our generation. I think of us as kind of a bridge generation between revolutionary um, moments and forces in addition to playing our own role, but is to help people realize we could not do what we're doing now if y'all didn't do what you did then. You were the most revolutionary force you could be in the time that was available to you, in the dynamics that were available to you. You changed the ground for us. And then we walked along that ground and we tried all the things we could try. And now we also helped lay the groundwork for what is happening with this these coming generations. I think it does not behoove us to see ourselves as separate entities or at odds or comp- competing with each other across time and space. I'm like, no, we are all being as radical as we can be inside of our conditions. And our job is to constantly follow those. To me, that's the thing that feels so important is to follow those who are younger and able to take bigger risk, braver, you know, less contained inside of colonial constructs and um, to bring our wisdom to bear, you know? So I'm not one of those people who's just like, oh, the way you do it is better. Fuck whatever I learned. No, I'm like, no, no, no. Here's, Here's like everything I can tell you about how to build right relationship and how to get in good relationship with change. Mm -hmm. Here's everything I can tell you about what the Zapatistas did and what the Black Panthers did. And like, here's everything I know because we do repeat. Our cycles of history do repeat. And I love, you know, when I look at my nibbling, when she is in a rage and she's just like, I can't believe this is allowed to happen. And I'm just like, fucking right. And I'm like, I was not allowed to wholly experience my rage as a child. I was not allowed to wholly experience my rage through most of my 20s. I was like, I'm not going to be an angry black woman. I'm going to be a love fest. And I'm like, no, a love fest is full of also a volcanic rage sometimes. And 
it's just so beautiful to be invited to be holy myself from every generation that's coming up below and to be like, oh, how do I, how do we build a future where we are all holy ourselves? That's good work to be involved in. Kenny, her boyfriend, called me that night. He said that somebody was kicking in the door and he thought they shot Brianna. I jumped up and I rushed over there. And when I get there, the streets just flooded with police. There was an officer and I told her who I wasn't that I needed to get through there because something had happened to my daughter. She told me I needed to get to the hospital. Of course, I went down and I told them why I were there. She looked it up, she didn't see her. So the lady said, well, I don't think she's here yet. I waited for about almost two hours. The lady said, well, ma'am, we don't have any recollection of this person being on the way. I get back to the apartment and it's still taped off. I tell the officer there that, you know, I needed to get in the apartment. Something was going on with my daughter and he told me to hang tight. So it took another two hours or so for him to come. He kind of just went on to ask me if Brianna and Kenny had been having any problems. And I said, absolutely not. Kenny would never do anything to Brianna. I said, well, where's Kenny? Like, I need to talk to Kenny. And he said, well, Kenny's at one of our offices. He's trying to help us piece together what happened here tonight. We were out there for a number of hours. It was kind of chilly. We left and got coffee and came back and was still standing out there waiting. It was about 11 o'clock the next day. He comes over and he says they were about done and they were wrapping up and then we would be able to get in there once they got finished. And I said, where's Brianna? Why won't anybody say where Brianna is? And he said, well, ma'am, she's still in the apartment. I knew what that meant then. After I left, I sat in the car, idle for a few minutes. I thought of all that Prince's mother had invested in him. I thought of all that Brianna's mother had invested in her. And all that was lost. Son, we are captured, surrounded by bandits. This has happened here in our only home. I do not believe we can stop the dreamers because they must ultimately stop themselves. And still, I urge you to struggle. Struggle for the memory of your ancestors. Struggle for the warmth of the Mecca. Struggle for your grandmother and grandfather. For your name. In my 15th year, Marcella Stinnett, Jonathan Price, Ijan Kazee, Rashard Brooks, Carlos Carson, David McAtee, Tony McDade, George Floyd, Tizon Reed, Michael Ramos, Daniel Prude, Rihanna Taylor, Manuel Ellis, William Green were all killed by the police 
what I love about young people is that they're, you know, like I grew up in, in, in a, in a generation where you ha- you went after the big things, right? It was like, this is really big. So you have to tackle that. And I feel like this younger generation is like, no, none of this shit is sliding. No more. None of it is sliding. Not, we, we are not interested. Fuck your systems and fuck your little microaggressions too. Fuck your, you know, it's like, we're not doing the structural shit and we're not doing the everyday shit. And we will tell you inside your structures. I think about the young woman in the um, Kansas City Police Department. In the Michigan Police. I know exactly what you're talking about. She's like, and you with your busted hair. And you with your busted pantsuit. I was like, I was like, she was like, I'm about to, she said, I'm going to read this structure and I'm going to read you too. You, the structure's getting read and all of y'all sitting inside of this structure are getting read. And I didn't come here to, for you to To like me. I didn't come here to, to ask you for shit. I didn't come here to be respectable and I'm not asking you to do anything. I'm telling you why you're trash for having not. And I was like, well, well, come on, sis. Well, come on. (laughs) And that, that level of, there is something powerful about, like, if you hold the line, then you, then your shore doesn't constantly erode. Right. It's like, if you hold the line, then they're not always, you know, constantly wearing away the rest of your shit. And these young folks are like, what I said is I hold the line. That's what I said I do. And that, I'm yes. like, come on, y'all. But with come complexity. On. I, see, I see it every with day. With complexity, yes. right? It's not like I'm so only angry or I'm only whatever. It's like, I'm all of this. We are all of this. We are twerking on the police cars. We are all of this. Yeah. The other thing that feels really present inside of this, of this film is... Inside the dream, there cannot be justice, right? Like that the imagination of what justice looks like cannot exist inside the dream. And so what does it mean? And so part of saying like, I would not take, you know, I, I, I wouldn't take away your suffering is because we need it in order to create the liberatory imagination for a justice that exists outside the dream. Um, and that to me was so, is such a necessary, and I thought about it when I thought about when I listened to Breonna Taylor's mother, right, and and that that night and morning of not knowing what happened to her daughter, and the and our global appeals, our global appeals for the people that murdered her child to somehow deliver something in in honor of her child, and and how again. It, there's something inside of that that is about that erosion of the shoreline, right? Is that like we we just keep giving more and more away because we don't have a concept of what it is that we that we can that we are allowed to hold. And young people are like, I may not, I'm, I don't have to have a concept to know that I'm not doing this shit no more, right? Like I don't have to, I don't have to imagine, I don't actually have to imagine the future to know that I'm down to do that shit because I'm not down to do this shit. And that's, that is so necessary. It's so necessary. Yeah, absolutely. So there are a few lines from Coates that I was really struck by. And a couple of them occur early in the film. And that is, he says, this is your country. This is your world. And I know that he's been criticized because people are like, this is not uplifting. This is not positive. Like, where's the hope? But I find the declaration that all of this belongs to you. All this shit is yours. I find that to be 
so affirming. Yes. 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 And and that the answer is not to yeah. cede any ground to white supremacy. Yes. Like Sonia said, like hold the line. Yes. And so what I am so heartened by when I see young people, and even in my 30s as young people, if you're a teenager, you're a young person, <laughs> um, is that like the rejection of things that I were just, that the rejection of things that I was taught, you just have to do. Like they're not code switching. They're, they're saying you're going to get it how we give it. And you know, I've had to question sometimes in my politics of I believe in let's push and let's walk up to the edge of the cliff. And they're saying that's not good enough. Y'all got to jump off because the unknown, the unexplored is preferable to how we're living now. So if you want better, you're just going to have to take the leap. Mm. You're just going to have to commit to that. Um, and I also loved Coates saying, and I think Adrian mentioned this at the end, he said, I never mm. wanted you to be twice as good as them. Yes. And that runs counter to so much of the messaging that I got. All of the messaging that I got yes. when I was a kid. The messaging that I'm still getting now, like from the elders. And like, no, we don't want to be twice as good as them because they are raggedy. Yes. And I see, yes. No, we must and aim I, higher. Yes. And, and to see young folks just so fully embodying that and moving in their power and just saying no we're going to we're going to be better and we're going to do better and that is not the bar that is not aspirational for us and then finally and something that i'm still working through is i am so fascinated by the way that gen z approaches gender like the rejection of normative gender and gender roles like i grew up in a very gendered world women do this and you wear skirts and you wear makeup and you know you move like this and because right you you're the the assumption is or the argument is you move like this because you're trying to draw as little attention to yourself as possible you want to you want to go with the norms go with the mores so that you can offset some of the violence that's going to be directed your way now obviously that that don't work it, that is not it right and ultimately gender is a prison and so I am so appreciative anytime I see a Gen Zer talking about this stuff, questioning this idea that normative gender is natural, that it's inevitable, because even, you know, they point out little stuff and I'm like, yeah, that don't make no sense. Like, yes, <laughs> like, you're right. <laughs> you, you are right. Like, w we don't have to go along with it just because that's what's been given. That's right. I love that. I love that. And I love that you speak to this, like, this piece around, you know, there's so much in this book that is heartbreaking, that is heart aching. And in the movie, I feel like it just heightens, you know, especially hearing from Breonna Taylor's mom. To me, it's just like, oh, like the devastation, the devastation is so intense. And to me, a core aspect of how I think about pleasure activism is rooted in Khalil Gibran's The Prophet, where it's like our sorrow carves out the space for our joy. And I feel like what ta does with this book is says we have to hear all of what has been carved out of us. We have to hear all of what we have suffered. We have to go all the way there. And so we have to go through this, this night and morning with Breonna Taylor's mom where she doesn't know what has happened to her daughter. And and we have to we have to experience it with her and we have to know you know about every single person that we've been learning about like say their name say their name say their name we have to learn all of them because all of that 
as part of the, what is being carved out of us that we have been filling. We continue to fill over and over again then with our resilience and our joy and our determination to be wholly human, wholly ourselves, and wholly giving no fucks about upholding these systems. Like, I feel like when watching it, by the time I got to the end of this, I feel what I feel as a Black revolutionary, which is I am not accountable to a system that does not love me. I do not have to be accountable to a system that does not love me. I'm not responsible for saving a system that does not love me. I am responsible for saving what I love and who I love and for working with people I love in order to do that. And that distinction feels so bright inside of this book, inside of this movie, inside of this conversation. <laughs> you know, I'm just sort of like, what we love makes us whole. What makes us whole is how we will survive. Not long ago, I was standing in an airport retrieving a bag from a conveyor belt. I bumped into a young black man. I said, my bad. Without even looking up, he said, you straight. And in that exchange, there was so much of that private rapport that can only exist between two particular strangers. Of this tribe that we call black. In other words, I was part of a world. I was a part of a world. Now to call that feeling racial is to hand over all those diamonds fashioned by our ancestors to the plunderer. We made that feeling. The people who must believe they are white can never be your measuring stick. I would not have you descend into your own dream. I would have you be a conscious citizen of this terrible and beautiful world. That is the technology of Blackness, is that inside of a world that would absolutely see us dead, we continue to, to defy whatever construct it is that is given to us, right? And so, like, oftentimes when people are like, I don't understand transformative justice, how can you forgive? And I'm like, how do you think white people are still alive? But not for the fact but not for the fact that Black people inside of our technology have figured out how, I was like, restorative justice is Blackness. It is the ability to work alongside, love alongside, play alongside, invite to the cookout still white people, despite what has happened over centuries and centuries. That is the technology of Blackness. You know, okay, so so as as you're talking about this, I was thinking about, how amazing it is that after all of this, the historic and ongoing violences that we face, the abuses, the indignities, that we're a people who still have the ability to hope and dream. You know, toward the end of this film, I was like, oh my God, like we haven't been beaten down. And especially it, within the context of this last election, we see white folks throwing temper tantrums. Right? Like, like you lose fair and square by the rules that you laid out. Yes. Okay? You lost, but you still yes. gonna take to the street. You're still gonna bitch about it and cry and buy your guns and all that. But but we we decided to play by your rules and you lost fair and square. And all of this is unnecessary. And so we are internalizing all of this. We're seeing all of this and we still can imagine and we can still dream and we can still innovate and we can still make, mm -hmm. like, that is amazing. Yes. That's why I'm proud to be a Black person. I just want to take a moment to honor the sophistication of a Black politic. 
because as I'm listening, you know, and I think about this moment, I'm like, and there are still people who are not quite there mm-hmm. who are like, oh, how mm-hmm. could you yeah, participate in this electoral process at all? And I'm like, right, I, that's fine. You can sit there if you want to. But I think that the majority of black people I know have the sophistication to be like, we will do what we need to do in this system to reduce the harm and make the conditions possible for us to organize and advance ourselves without getting caught up too hard in the representational politics of it all, without denying that there is something important to the representational politics of it all, without giving up on the world we are imagining, without giving up on the fact that we will make the best cultural artifacts around this victory. And we will make the, you know, if you're singing a song, it's you about to lose your job. If you are singing a song, it's fuck Donald Trump. It is about Black people who understand the sophisticated political moment that we're in. And when those don't, when they don't get it, we're just like, it's okay, Ice Cube. It's okay, Lil Wayne. Y'all just go sit over there in the corner at the children's table and have your moment. But we're going to be over here on some sophisticated Black politics, as we have been and as we will continue to be. And I do think, I love the idea that transformative justice is Blackness, that this moment is Blackness, that we are on a path towards abolition and liberation. And really, again, blowing up all the constructs. I always keep saying this now. I'm like, let go of the construct, keep the culture, and we could. Son, I think back to our trip to homecoming. You and I were at the football game. We were sitting in the bleachers with old friends and their children. I remember walking down to the tailgate party. I saw the entire diaspora around me. Hustlers, lawyers, cappers, busters, doctors, barbers, deltas, drunkards, geeks and nerds. And I felt myself disappearing into all of their bodies. The birthmark of damnation faded. Black power is the dungeon side view of Monticello, which is to say, the view taken in struggle. The warmth of our particular world is beautiful no matter how brief and breakable. We have made something down here. They made us into a race. We made ourselves into a people. Dear Ken, you were always smart, tough, and beautiful. And so, as a young parent, I never never thought that I had to protect you from white supremacy, or or worse, simply whiteness. I thought you had the qualifications to be above whiteness. But that's before I understood whiteness and its global desire to put all others on the defensive. And in that regard, I failed to prepare you. I failed to prepare you to understand that your humanity is the only qualification you need to exist and be free. And instead, I taught you how to defend your blackness. I once believed that if I taught you how to defend your blackness, you would be shielded from white supremacy. I believe that proving your intelligence and strong will to a world of followers was successful parenting. This thinking informed a world of trouble for us as we navigated spaces of white violence and white silence. And still, my answer was to defend our blackness. In this regard, I failed to protect you. Blackness needs no defense. Whiteness is the problem. Maybe I should have framed the problems of humanity around whiteness and the tactics of its survivalism. The misguided desire for homogeneity and sameness that inform its hatred for blackness and otherness 
These are not a black problem. I should have prepared you to go on the offensive and put whiteness on the defense. The Irish, the Italian, the Nordic, and the Greek should retreat to their ethnic concerns and abandon this construct of whiteness. There is no cultural value in whiteness because assimilation only absorbs. It does not give. But the definition of survival in America is getting next to whiteness. The closer a group is to whiteness, the higher their place in the American caste system. But survival in America is bringing destruction to the world. But I want you to define what survival means for yourself and outside of the context of America. Survival for me has meant different things at different times. Meeting your mom was a moment of survival for me. I was introduced to your mom at a voter registration drive. While she came to the registration table with a group of people, she was the only person I saw. And though several people were talking to me at the same time, your mom's voice was the only voice I heard. And when she agreed to go on a date with me, it was the only event that mattered to me. On that first date, we saw a terrible movie, Hollow Man, and ate terrible food, sour pesto, at Dana DeLuca. Yet, it was the most incredible date I had been on. It was incredible because when your mom held my hand, I knew I would never let go. There were no qualifiers or explanations for this moment. When your mom held my hand, I felt a moment of transcendence that existed outside of space and time. I found my human. Up until that point, I had spent a lot of time trying to find a space to fit in. But at that moment, I accepted the space I filled as adequate. This is where I belong. I belong here. Not because of some construct of success or failure, and not because someone else validated me, but simply because I was here. Your mom held my hand and acknowledged that I existed. And I knew immediately that, that I was here. It was an awakening. When I was your age, I did not imagine a world that had room for me. I imagined a world that tolerated my existence. So with this belief, I settled for versions of myself that were incomplete. Sometimes I would pretend to be ignorant in order to fit in. Or I would pretend to know things in order to stand out. My desire to be accepted would swing the pendulum of behaviors that defined my insecurity. But I want you to know that at 18, the world needs you. Not a smart you or a cool you. The world simply needs you. The world needs you for everything that you are and for everything that you are not. The world needs you to accept the value of your brilliant humanity and courage because cowards are ruining this planet. This is why I push you so hard to define yourself. I push you to define yourself because if you don't, others will. Old worlds end and new worlds begin every day. So as we look forward to a new world, I hope you will take responsibility for building it. You are blessed with a keen sense of clarity and integrity. And while we may not agree on many things these days, I do trust you. I trust your spark and I see your light. This gives me hope for the future. My hope is that you'll navigate with faith while confronting your fears. 
My prayer is that your values will be a North Star that you never lose sight of. My dream is that you forever live free and that whiteness never has you on the defense. My goal was to have you accept your blackness as your superpower. My reality is the brilliance of your humanity. Our way has been rough because we are both stubborn. And this may be our lot in life. But while my opinions are stubborn and my beliefs are old-fashioned, so is my love. My love for you will never change. It is indeed as stubborn as my ways. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of HBO's Between the World and Me podcast. I'd like to thank all the guests we heard from today. Bisa Butler, Adrian Marie Brown, Kimberly Nicole Foster, and Sonia Renee Taylor. As well as ta Coates and Camila Forbes, whose work is the reason we're here today. And an extra special thanks to Keith and Kennedy White, the father and daughter featured in this episode. Next week, we'll have a special final episode that features conversations with people from the Apollo Theater, the Kennedy Center, and Yale and Howard Universities. Next Monday, tune in to our fourth and final episode, The World. HBO's Between the World and Me podcast is hosted by me, Susan Kelechi Watson, and produced by HBO in conjunction with Spoke Media and Domino Sound. Our executive producers are Elisa Payne, Nolika Radway, Keith Reynolds, Aliyah Tavakolian, and Brigham Mosley. Creative director is Kenya Denise, and senior producer is Alexandra De Palma. Caroline Hamilton produces the show with help from Goldie Patrick, Trey Jones, Alicia Force, and Carson McCain. Sound design and engineering by Evan Arnett, and original music from the film by Jason Moran. Our theme song is by Cone. If you like what you heard today, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. It really helps people find the show. You can also stream the podcast on HBO Max. Thanks for listening.